This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. But I, but I remember very well, I had my friend with me, and I thought, I can't show any fear. I have to tell her that everything's okay, and I have to, I have to, pull, I have to do this. You know, I have no choice here. Welcome to There I Was, a podcast where we'll take you into the cockpit of pilots who are in difficult situations and learn the skills and the thinking that got them out of those situations. Presented by the AOPA Air Safety Institute, I'm your co-host, Richard McSpadden, Executive Director of the ASI been a GA pilot for 30 years, a former military pilot and commander flight leader of the Air Force Thunderbirds. I'm pleased to be joined by Kristen Bodner, who has her hands in just about everything we do around the ASI. Kristen, welcome. Hi, I'm Kristen. I am the project manager for the Air Safety Institute. I've been a private pilot for about five years and received my undergraduate and MBA degrees from Embry-Riddle. Most of the flying that I do is recreational in Cessna 172s. We're excited you joined us, and uh, we're, we're delighted for our very first inaugural podcast to have uh, a special guest with us. And uh, Kristen, tell us about who we've got to kick us off. We are very excited to be joined today by Patty Wagstaff via Skype. Patty is a friend and ambassador for AOPA and a world-renowned airshow pilot. Among her many accomplishments, Patty is a six-time member of the U.S. aerobatic team, has won the gold, silver, and bronze medals in Olympic-level international aerobatic competition, and is the first woman to win the title of U.S. National Aerobatic Champion, not to mention she's one of the few people who has accomplished that three times. Her extra 260 airplane is on display at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum right next to Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Vega, and in 2004, Patty was elected into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. We're really excited and honored that Patty will be joining us and sharing her experiences. Patty, you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so welcome, Patty, and thank you for joining and being our inaugural guest on There I Was podcast. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, too. I guess uh, last time I saw you was at Sunflun. 
Yeah, Sun and Fun a couple months ago, and then uh, several years before that, you know, I think we first met in the uh, in in the demo days. I was flying uh, with the F-15 demo team, and you were right in the middle of your run uh, on the U.S. aerobatic team. Eighty-five. Uh, I was there, eighty-nine to ninety time frame. I think that was right in the middle of your your world. Yeah, that time. was right when I was like really heavy into competing and and doing doing shows as well. And yeah. Those were great air show days, too. Yeah, some some great times they really were. And then um, yeah. back when I was with the Thunderbirds in, in 02 and 03, and, th- and that's when your your string of awards uh, just kept running on. So it was just so exciting to come back into the industry and see how well you'd, you'd been doing. But, okay, in spite of all that, Patty, and, you know, just congratulations on all you've done in aviation, and thank you so much for being a friend to AOPA. But, okay. Thank you. Here's where it really gets serious. For the first time this week, I flew a left seat of a Cessna 185. That yeah. was one. I, th- I think I read in your bio, your first lesson was in a 185. Is that right? It was, yeah. Um, you know, I, I people don't realize that those, those planes are kind of a handful, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, Richard <laughs> McSpadden in particular, didn't realize that those planes can be a handful until this weekend. And just had a ball flying that thing, but uh, that that airplane really is a handful to fly. It so. really is. And did did you have a crosswind? Yep, yep, sure did. Not not too bad, you know. It's probably eight knots yeah. uh, somewhere like that, you know. So it was a workable crosswind, but uh, yeah, that thing requires a lot of control inputs. I mean, you just got to fly every aspect of that airplane. You really, really do. I mean, it's uh, people people think they're just going to be an easy tail dragger, but they are not an easy tail dragger at all. So uh, at least in part of your success has got to be the fact that if you learned in an aircraft like that, so difficult to fly, that, that's, pre- that's pretty good training ground to start out with, I think. Yeah, it is. I, I was really lucky. I, you know, I didn't get my license in the 185. I, I switched over to something a lot easier because it was just too, you know, it was too much to start in. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I started flying it fairly soon after I, after I started getting a little tail dragger time and then I started then I transitioned back over to it and I flew it all over Alaska. I flew it to I, I took it on a trip with a girlfriend that lived in Dillingham who I knew when I lived there out in the bush and um, it's it's about 300 miles southwest of uh, Anchorage and and I took it out there and um, I got lost for the first time that I'd ever been lost in an airplane. So I have a lot of memories of that airplane. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you do. And, and and as you know, we we started this podcast, just the notion of people enjoy hearing stories and they enjoy hearing just real, real life stories from accomplished pilots like yourselves and situations they've gotten into and how they got out of it. So, you know, even that sounds like a pretty good scenario of, um, uh, maybe a situation you got into and how you got into it and the things that you would do differently and how you got out of it. Is that, can, can we talk about that? Sounds like a pretty interesting uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, um, it was definitely an interesting experience. So I, um, I picked up my friend in Dillingham and, um, and, and I'm sorry, we, Patty, if I can interrupt and like about what, what, uh, experience are you now? Are you like recently, you know, new pilot, hundred hour, kind of, kind yeah, of? Where are you? I yeah, probably, I was working on my ratings. Um, I'd have to look at my logbook, but I was working on my ratings, so I was probably working. I already had my instrument rating, okay, and I've probably been flying. I don't know, a year and a half, maybe, okay. something like that. Okay. So pretty, you know, building time and not really knowing what I was 
where I was going with it. But yeah, actually, um, in that mode where where a lot of pilots are, where you've got your certificate, you know, in some way or form, you want it to be a part of your life, maybe a part of your career. So you're so you're out having fun and, and building time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, it was my husband's plane, my ex-husband's plane, and um, after I started getting some tailoring bag of time, I said, hey, why don't I take this airplane on a trip, and I'll go pick up my friend Sue, and we'll fly around the Cuscoquim up to the Yukon and down pat, down through uh, Denali from Fairbanks and just do, just do sort of a, a circuit. Was your friend and, uh, um, also so a pilot? He, Sue is a pilot now, but she wasn't then. Okay. And um, Yeah, and so, so she had to put her trust in me, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so I picked up Sue and we started heading west. We were both gonna, we were going to go to Bethel where we both lived, and so we started flying and we got near Togiak, um, another a village. And I was um, I was flying VFR and you know the weather in Alaska changes really fast. It's it's not like here where the front comes and you have you know you have time. Fronts pop up there and weather just pops up very very quickly in Alaska. And there were a lot of you know, there's mountains and a lot of hills and valleys and, you know, tundra, uh, lakes. And it really all looks the same when you get, you know, if you're up high, you can sort of see a mountain range in the distance. You can see the shape of the river, where the river bends. But when you get down lower, and we were being forced down lower due to the, due to the weather, everything sort of looks the same. And um, so I made a turn down a... Um, a valley, you know, in the hills and um, inside of the mountains there. And it turned out that I wasn't sure that it was going to go where I wanted to go. I didn't want it to end up, you know, in a dead end. Right, right, <laughs> Which, yeah. which yeah. is why the, the mountains there are kind of littered with um, with metal from people that have done that. So I turned around and I realized I just didn't know exactly where we are. And that's the first time that it happened to me in an airplane. You know, I just, I don't like getting lost. I like to know where I am. Um, so I knew I just had to climb. I thought, well, I have two choices here. I could land in the tundra, you know, find a place to sit down. I thought, then what? Nobody knows where we are. You know, we had some survival gear, but nobody would know where we were. It would be embarrassing. You know, it would be humiliating, actually. So I thought, well, that's, that's not a great option. So I thought, well, I'll just climb, and I'll, if I head back toward Dillingham, at least I, you know, I know eventually I'll pick up a VOR. And we had plenty of fuel, which was good. So I, I still remember it really well because I was, you know, I was nervous. I think it might have been the first time I'd actually gotten my instrument ticket wet okay. and really okay. used it. For those that may not catch the terminology, by meaning getting your instrument ticket wet, you mean actually flying in IFR conditions, right? So this is... Is it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there I was. I could either fly into a mountain, I could land in a, a valley in the tundra, or I could um, climb up through an overcast and try and get a, get above all the mountains. But I, but I remember very well, I had my friend with me, and I thought, I can't show any fear. I have to tell her that everything's okay, and I have to, I have to, pull, I have to do this. You know, I have no choice here. So we climbed, and I said, oh, you know, we're just, we're just going to go on instruments, and we're going to climb back up and turn around and go back to Dillingham because, you know, the weather's obviously getting worse. So, I, you know, I had to stay really calm and tell her how everything was great. And meanwhile, I didn't know exactly where I was. I didn't know exactly where the mountains were. Um, just not a great situation all the way around. 
So we kept climbing. Um, we got up to uh, about 10,000 feet, so I knew I wasn't going to hit anything um, in that in that area. And um, then I had to figure out where we were, so I just kept heading west. And we were, what I think we were 12, 12 5, something like that by the time we got up there. Now, out in western Alaska, there's no radar, no ATC. Um, people fly instruments out there in uncontrolled airspace without talking to anybody fairly often. Right. Because that's that's what you can that's what you have to do and it's legal but but there wasn't anybody I could call and I didn't have GPS we didn't have anything like that at the time so I just had to wait until the VOR came in just to and set the stage you're, you you take off on uh, what's expected to be a VFR flight but but your experience you know that, that the yeah. weather can change up there so fortunately you have a lot of gas so that kind of takes that out of the equation um, yeah, that was the, that was the one good thing. Yeah, <laughs> the only good thing. Yeah, you have uh, a friend with you that is is not helpful in a in an aviation scenario from the standpoint of you know doesn't doesn't have the experience or background to to, to help you. So you're right. You're kind of doing the solo yeah, thing yeah. here, and so you get in. So you're you're in deeper in VFR. Suddenly the weather's closing in on you. The mountains are getting higher. And now the choice before you is keep descending to stay VFR but go deeper in the canyon. And the other option is to yeah. climb and go IFR, but you know you know at least you're safe that direction, right? Exactly. And, you know, luckily I had an instrument rating, so I could do it. So I, um, the next thing I realized, I was picking up ice. And, you know, just to add to the fun, right? So yeah. I'm looking down, and um, there's ice accumulating on the tires. And um, I knew I could fly with little ice because I learned to fly in Alaska and you know, we'd pick up ice and um, knew how to deal with it. So I thought, okay, I'll just keep an eye on this. And again, I have to be really cool because of my girlfriend. I don't want to scare her and I don't want to kill her. You know? <laughs> so, um, so I just kept climbing and, and I'll never forget seeing the VOR start to move. And it was starting to pick up Dillingham. I was like, oh my God, thank God. You know, this is, uh, I'm finally getting something. We were about 60 miles out of Dillingham at that point. So that was a really good sign. But yeah. then, then I started trying to get the ATIS in Dillingham and um, see what the weather is. And I thought, now I'm going to have to go shoot an approach because we were totally on top of, of an overcast. And I hadn't really done too many of those in, you know, except in training. So, um, we got to Dillingham, made it, followed the VOR needle, and um, I kept remember remembering things that my instructors would tell me, like just believe in the instruments, trust the instruments, things like that. And um, sure enough, it brought us to Dillingham, and it turned out there was a hole over Dillingham. Like, the whole rest of the western part of Alaska was stopped in, but there was one hole <laughs> making it that I could make a VFR descent into Dillingham. It was a miracle. So finally, some and, good luck um, came your way. Uh, yeah, finally. So we uh, we descended and landed, and I've never been so glad to see terra firma in my life. <laughs> I saw a buddy on the ramp, and uh, a pilot, and uh, somebody I'd known for a while before we were both pilots, actually, a guy named Dave Bogart. And I remember Dave walking by and went, oh, where'd you, know, where'd you come from? I thought you took off. And I'm like, yeah, well, we got sucked in. So we turned around, and he said, oh, you must come back. Uh, on instruments, I said, "Oh yeah, we just, you know, we just, sure." Yeah, no like, problem. No big deal. Yeah, no big yeah. deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, um, then the next day, we, you know, we spent the night back there at her house, and the next day we um, got up and did it again, and we 
we flew all over Saskatchewan, and we, we cut up north of there to the Yukon, and then we went over to uh, Denali and flew around the mountain, and then um, headed back down to Anchorage. So it turned out to be a great trip, and I saw some pictures of it. But So you kept um, going well, after you went through all of that. You, you were like, okay, well, that was the first leg, you know, we'll just uh, keep on this adventure the rest of the day. Well, you know, I mean, it taught me a lot about my own limitations. It also taught me that um, having somebody with me was a great motivator. And I wondered how I would have been if I'd been by myself. I would have been more frightened, I think. And maybe, uh, I I think I would have, you know, I would have survived it. But I, having somebody with me made a big difference. When you're, you know, when you have the responsibility of getting somebody home safe and having to be cool, even though you don't feel that way. Um, was a huge motivator in that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting yeah. perspective yeah. that having that person there added a, enough stress to the point that it actually probably accelerated your performance, you know, because we, we I know believe that, it did. I, I believe it did. Yes, yeah, st- up to stress up to a certain point is actually an, a performance accelerator. Beyond a certain point, of course, it, it's it's a decelerator, but in a in a distraction. But right. so, Patty, as you look back um, on that scenario. Um, what I gathered just listening to you is, and it seems like these scenarios happen in, in any given situation, is you come up to where you have a choice. And yours was, okay, I don't really want to go into the weather. Um, on the other hand, I really don't want to go VFR up this unknown canyon because we all know, you know what's frequently the result of that. So your options were, you, you didn't have two great choices. So something that I always teach people is, you know, take take the best of even the bad options, but make a deliberate choice. And so right. that sounds like at least one critical decision point you made there was you, you'd rather go fly IFR, even though you weren't really that proficient at true weather flying. Um, but that was right. your best. And that, that seems to be a really critical decision you made at that point. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's true. And and when you do make a decision, sometimes you have to you have to make it fast when you're flying. You don't have time to dilly dally and ponder all the possibilities. You have to make the decision and go with it, and um, you know make the best decision and go with it. Um, it's not like you're buying a house and you have a lot of time to really consider it. So, right. Yeah. Um, I think that's being resourceful, and I think that's one of the the best things that a pilot can be is resourceful and really develop that tool and. And uh, instantly, if something's in your way, you instantly think of what's next and what's around the corner and what you can do to improve the situation. Yeah, what, so, what we call staying ahead of the airplane, right, is, is that... Um, staying ahead of the know, airplane. And, and I think a lot of that being resourceful is trusting, trusting your instincts mm-hmm. and trusting yourself and, um, and having good instructors that have, have given you scenarios that, that will help you with that. That was, that was something that was really clear to me. In that situation, um, my husband, my instructors had all talked to me about, you know, what to do in those kinds of circumstances. So I had I had some fabulous training, and you know, all of the, their voices would pop into my head. You know, not just that instance, but other other times in Alaska when, you know, when I, in all the years I was flying there, that their voices were always there. The other element of that that strikes me is that somewhere along the line, you made a decision to take on a lot of gas. So you had extra gas there, which just took that out of the equation. I can imagine how much more yeah. difficult that could have been if you were also low on gas in the scenarios you had oh there. My so God. was that just something that you <laughs> naturally did flying in Alaska? or? Absolutely. I, I was always told to fill the tanks no matter where I went and never 
think that you're going to get fuel somewhere else. And and out in the bush, they can run out of fuel, or they might not have fuel. The fuel truck didn't make it in, or the, you know, whatever various reasons that there's no fuel, which was pretty common in those days. And so I was taught to you always you always dress to walk out. You don't wear shoes that are uncomfortable if you have to hike for a day to get out of a you know a valley somewhere. Uh, if you have to make an off-airport landing or if you have to spend the night, you always have survival gear and you always top off your tanks, always. And you always go with full fuel. And I still go with that today. I still carry extra fuel whenever, you know, I always top off the tanks whenever I, uh, whenever I can. So, but those were all things I was taught by, by excellent, you know, instructors. Yeah, Patty, something you said that really stuck out to me um, when you were in your decision-making process was, um, you know, was it that you would be embarrassed to land, um, you know, how other people might view you and think, you know, if you made the right decision, wrong decision, what went wrong that, that forced you to land right then? And so, you know, yeah. that's, that's something I can definitely understand, uh, you know, as a newer pilot, which you were at the time. And I think that for a lot of pilots, it's it's a mindset that uh, is dangerous and actually can continue uh, much later into their their piloting experience. So, can you or Richard speak to that of um, you know how you overcome that uh, that sense of pride when you're making a decision? Well, that's true. That that's really interesting because um, that sense of pride can also gets you in big trouble, um, you know, as you're saying, and you can continue to fly when you shouldn't because you don't want to look like an idiot and land on a road. <laughs> but, you know, there's a certain level of maturity that you have to have when you're when you're out flying around and taking a, a person with you that's not a pilot mm-hmm. and taking that kind of responsibility, you have to have a certain a certain level of maturity. And I think most pilots have it or they get it when they start flying, if nothing else. But that's interesting. I read somewhere recently too that often it's that that sense of not wanting to embarrass yourself that does make people do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do, and it, and it often has bad a bad outcome. The other piece of this scenario I find interesting, Patty, is so 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 there you are. Uh, you've decided that you're gonna you're gonna go in the weather rather than stay VFR in, a, in an unknown place, and you had done your pre-study, or you were familiar enough with the environment to know in the back of your mind where you needed to be, you know, sort of yeah. worst case, right? Right, and that's the beauty of sectional charts and whack charts, and and I'm so glad that I learned to fly with those and studying every little bend and every river and have, having to know what all the landmarks were because that was how we had to navigate. But there are there are blocks on there that give you the altitude in each of those blocks, and that's very important when you're flying in the west or mountainous territory. Um, so you could just look at one region on the on the sectional, and it might say ten five, and that's the highest peak in that in that section. And for people who are learning on glass, you know, learning with glass cockpits, they don't have that. So they don't they don't have that type of situational awareness for the area. I think that that you can get from the sectional. So I I think it's really too bad that that people are getting away from paper charts. Yeah, you know I I agree with you, and, and I teach and and taught in the military. You know when things start to go bad or you start to find yourself getting task saturated, back up to the very basics that'll that'll keep you safe. One, do I have flying airspeed? Two, is my flight path clear? I'm not going to hit anything, right? And if you can make sure right. those two things, you know, those those two things will give you the time to figure everything else out. So when things start getting to crunch time or they start getting a little bit hairy, make sure you have flying airspeed. Make sure your flight path's clear and you're not going to hit anything. Then you can then you can analyze from there and, and 
decide what what the next step is. Yeah, which it sounds like kind of what you did. But then you kind of hit another unexpected uh, part of this. You start running into icing. So tell us what, you know, uh, how that would... Uh, I know, then there's ice. Well, yeah. luckily, I, you know, I did learn to fly in that area. And so um, so I was familiar enough with ice. And, and my, my husband was a very good instrument pilot. And so I had flown with him a number of times where he picked up ice. So I understood quite a bit probably more about ice as a low-time pilot than most people ever, you know, will, will ever know. I mean, and because most people never never get icing conditions um, to the extent that we did in Alaska. So I had some experience with it, and, um, I mean, it still made me nervous, you know, no, yeah. no question. But also I understood that at certain altitudes and certain temperatures you're going to get less ice if we'd warmed up as I was – I, one of the reasons I was uh, worried about shooting the approach was I didn't know what kind of ice I was going to pick up as I got lower and the, the temperature got warmer. Right. So, you know, you get to a certain point where it's too cold for ice because the air dries, gets drier when it's colder. That's why the ice in, like, the, the Midwest states and over the Appalachians is almost worse than what you see in some of the northern states where it's colder. Well, great. Well, we thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, today, Patty. But before we go, I, I want to just learn a little bit about I know you're down in St. Augustine these days. I hope to drop in and see you sometime. And you've got a flight academy oh, going good. and you're I doing hope some. Do. Please do. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, be, be careful of the imitations you make, though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, you, you're no, running a flight talk. academy down there and you're, and you're doing some upset training. Yeah, and a, tell us um, about that. We have an aerobatic school uh, that we started about two and a half years ago, and it's it's been going great. It's it's just um, it's one of these things I jumped into. Oh, yeah, it's something I thought about for a long time, but I, I didn't think I'd enjoy it that much. And um, after starting this, I I have enjoyed it so much just from the incredible students that we've gotten here, and uh, we just we get people from all over the world, and and they're just. You know, nobody has to come and do this, so everybody wants to be here, and everybody enjoys it. We just have, you know, just uh, just great people that that we've attracted. So we're really lucky. It's been a lot of fun, and um, so we do aerobatic training here, and then we do upset training, which is similar but different, um, down in Kissimmee. And we're we partner with Simcom, big simulator training company, to give upset training to uh, uh, through them. And so we have an extra down there to do that. So that's that's something I've just recently started doing. So so we're really excited about that. That's fantastic. I, I've taken one aerobatic flight, and it was just amazing to see, you know, going from uh, an airplane that wants to stay stable at all times to something that I can truly, uh, you know, push the envelope and, and see what it can really yeah. do. Well, you know, it, it should give you confidence. I think we have a, a one-day course um, called a confidence course, and, you know, people, most people haven't done spins and they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they fly in a very narrow envelope and they come and see what the plane can do and how easy it is to, to really recover from a lot of these things that mm-hmm. you can get into. And they have a lot a lot more confidence after they've done that. Yeah, so absolutely. It's really, it's rewarding to see that. Really enjoyable to, to catch up with you at Sun Fun, Patty. And just yeah, thank you, you so too. much. Yeah. Thanks, Patty. Thank you, Patty. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye. So, Kristen, what what a story! Um, there, there's so so much that came out of that story in different situations. So, from from your perspective, you know, as a relatively new pilot, what would you, would you think about it? She's as she's telling that story. What kind of things came across your mind? Well, I certainly know what it's like to have a friend on board and having to keep your head clear and just keep a straight face as you're 
potentially panicking inside and you don't want to let them know because, um, you know, they, one, you don't want to, you don't want to scare them and terrify them and have them never want to fly again. Um, but two, there's potential that they can help you. I mean, they can, depending on your situation, help you run through checklists, um, or keep an eye outside if, if you're running through a checklist and, and also by keeping calm, knowing that you're, you're really doing that for their, for their own mental health, uh, it, it helps you clear your head too. And so I think that it sounds like that's what she did. She really was just trying to work through that in her head and not, not showing her panic on the outside. Yeah. It sounds like it actually helped elevate her game a little bit in that realizing that the responsibility there and that she had to kind of, you know, maintain things to, to keep her passenger. But I think, you know, I always feel that like, you know, the FAA requirement when you're taking somebody flying that you give them the passenger briefing and I always find that balance, you know, on the one hand, you want it, you want to brief them. It's one, it's required and two, it's good common sense. On the other hand, you don't want to be so extensive with it or, or the way you do it that it actually scares them because it's one of the first things you do when they get in the airplane, you know? So I find that always a balance. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it is, it, it's such an important part of, uh, of your pre-flight. And, and I think while there is potential to to cause concern in your passenger that you're going through things like, okay, if we lose our engine on takeoff, what are, you know, uh, what steps are we going to go through? Um, but at the same time, there's also potential for instilling some confidence in your passenger that you know what you're doing. You have these steps readily available in your head to call upon and you have the, the training to work through them so that while you don't anticipate any of these surprises, you're prepared for them. Yeah. Yeah, the second thing I took away from that, there's so many good scenarios to talk about here, is she had a lot of fuel. So that just took that out of the equation. And having been somebody that went too low on gas uh, in my career before, it is such an uncomfortable and, and stressful feeling when you're low on gas because now it magnifies the difficulty of all your decisions you may not be able to afford to climb up because you don't want to use all that gas in the climb. And you may not be able to go to your divert because you may not have enough gas to get to the divert. It makes it so much more challenging. And so what I have done for, for years now is always take a lot more gas than I think I need. And so, you know, I just encourage our, our listeners to think about that and just take gas out of the equation. I mean, sometimes weight and balance considerations, you can't, you know, take all that gas, but given the option and the availability, fly with your tanks filled. Yeah, definitely. That's one less thing to worry about. No, certainly one less thing for Patty to worry about as she ran through her uh, potential remedies for her problem. You know, an another aspect of that story that, that struck me is that she is expecting a VFR day with her friend in a fun, enjoyable flight. And how many of us have done that where you take off and now the weather is worse than what you expected? And so she, somewhere in that flight, she has to make a mental shift as to what's required of her in this flight. And that transition from VMC into IMC is actually very difficult. And you teach pilots, give up. Once you make that decision, give up on the VMC and go to, I, go to IMC and trust your instruments. And uh, she did that instinctively, and she obviously had very good instruction for that. Yeah, and um, I think that... You know, her, her also knowing those conditions and knowing the potential for the conditions to change was really important. She was very familiar with that region. Yeah. And, you know, that's not always the case every time you go up. But, you know, it's certainly a good idea to to talk with other pilots in the area if you're renting from, um, 
you know, a local flight school or something, talk to the pilots and CFIs there and, and get their, um, get their experiences, find out, uh, the potential for conditions to change drastically or, or other, or other day-to-day scenarios that they encounter. Yeah. And then have you, Kristen, let me ask you this. Have you ever been lost in, in an airplane? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have definitely been times where I've been on a cross-country flight and then, um, you know, I think that I'm that paying attention to my surroundings and I'm doing uh, my flow, going over the instruments. Um, but there have been, you know, a few times where I've kind of caught myself, you know, wait, let me let me just verify, you know, this this is everything's starting to look the same or, you know, uh, and, and I think that, that in that situation, the best thing that I, that I have done and can do is to climb and just get a better sense of my surroundings, look for, um, you know, look for major roads and go back to the, the old school, get out my sectional and just, uh, look for those landmarks that can help me get my bearings again. Yeah, so um, what a great story, especially as our inaugural uh, There I Was podcast. Um, So delighted to have Patty Wagstaff as our guest and for her to share a story that had so many good lessons learned that the rest of us can think about and incorporate into our flying and pass on to to others that we fly with. Absolutely. I think it was a great story for uh, pilots of all experience levels and um, really just showed that this can happen to anyone and that um, by staying calm and relying on your training, you can really work through any situation. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to check us out online, you can go to airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. And if you have thoughts or comments on the podcast, you can head over to our new social media platform, AOPA Hangar, and continue the discussion with others in the aviation community. Fly safe.